2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, for the sake of the promise of life in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dearly loved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. Five years ago, when I was 63 years of age, I was elected president of the Baptist State Convention of North Carolina. One of the younger pastors I know came up to me afterwards and said, this is going to look real good on your resume. (laughs) And I said to him, at my age, I'm not worried about my resume. I'm more worried about what's going to be in my obituary. Jonathan Edwards, when he was 19 years of age, wrote 70 resolutions that he lived by the rest of his life. Interestingly, excuse me, 19 years old. Listen to one of those that a 19-year-old wrote. He said this, resolved to think much on all occasions of my own dying and of the common circumstances which attend death. He said, one of my resolutions is always to remember my own death. Never get that out of my mind. Paul had death on his mind when he wrote this. Now, there's a lot that has happened. Last book that we studied was Colossians, and here we are in 2 Timothy. A lot has happened between these two. When Paul wrote the book of Colossians, he was under house arrest. Rome knew that he was a political prisoner. In fact, the arresting officer had sent a letter that I'm sure went with him that said, this man is not worthy of jail or death. That they knew it was trumped up charges, but he had appealed to Caesar and he ended up spending at least two years under house arrest, just waiting for Caesar to have time to hear his case. So he showed up and when he did, according to church history, Caesar knew it was a sham, let him go. And he went back to his missionary journeys. After that, in AD 64, an event happened that changed Christianity in the Roman Empire. Rome burned. Nero, who probably started the fire, had to find a scapegoat, and so he decided to blame Christians for the burning of Rome. And from A.D. 64 until Constantine, all it took to put a Christian to death was to arrest them, and they admit that they're a Christian. So sometime after A.D. 64, between A.D. 64 and 68, probably 67, 68, Paul was rearrested. This time there's no hope. Last time, he expressed hopefulness that he'd be let go. This time, he knows, I'm going to die. The time of my departure is at hand, he says. He's now not staying in house arrest. He's down in the bottom of the Mamertine prison. It was a cold place with no sunlight. In fact, one of the personal notes he makes at the end, he says, Timothy, come quickly and bring my cloak. He's cold. He said, bring some books to read. He's bored. But most of all, he's lonely. He'll list at the end of chapter 4 all the ones who went on to do mission work, but they're no longer with him. And then he'll have these words, only Luke is with me. He says, come quickly, get John Mark, bring him with you. So here he is, knowing that at any moment, it's up to the whim of Rome, but the day will come when he will hear the marching of boots. They will come to his cell, drag him out, take him to the public place of execution. And the execution that a Roman citizen would receive is beheading. And that was in his near future when he wrote this letter. So in essence, he decides, I'm going to write one more letter to somebody I love. My son in the faith, Timothy. And Calvin said that this was his last will and testament written not merely in ink, but in Paul's lifeblood. 
Now, I'm so grateful for being a pastor. And one of the things I do as a pastor, I don't even know how many funerals I've done. It's way up there. But I don't have a funeral sermon because, and many of you have been there, you know what I do. I sit down with the family. I talk with them. I get personal memories from the family and turn that into a tribute for the person, tied it in with scriptures. But I walk through the person's life. And, and, and I count that an honor. The word eulogy means good word. So I say good words about that person. But I found that it's also something that gives a blessing to the family when we meet. Because they're sitting there and it's coming to their mind. All those blessings that they're counting and things that they remember. And it just encourages their hearts. But one of the things I've noticed through the years of sitting with families, sitting with every family that I've ever done a funeral with, I, I notice what they don't talk about. They don't sit here and say, I remember when I was 13 that my dad gave me for Christmas and then they list the Christmas present. I've never heard a woman say, you know, the one regret I have about my mother, I wish we'd spent more time shopping for clothes together. When you get to the end, you remember the time you had together. You remember what a good father, mother, husband, wife that person was. Uh, you remember the great things they did in a recent funeral that I did. The uh, man had invented something that later on became the I've fallen and I can't get up button. <laughs> and the family was so proud of that invention that he did in his job. And it was patented. And, and so, so they, they were proud of his accomplishment. You talk about the accomplishments of the person. But mainly, you talk about the things that you can't put on a ledger as far as what money or the world says are important. So this is Paul's last letter. He's sitting down and writing the last things he'll say to someone he loves. And that's what we're going to study. So let me give you four things that are mentioned in these first two verses that show us what matters most in life. The first thing I want to say to you, and all of us ought to be thinking about the end. When you're at the end of your life, you think about your calling. When you're at the end of your life, you think about your calling. Look how Paul describes himself to his friend. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will. Now, he didn't have to pull rank on Timothy. Timothy knew he was an apostle. Why in the world would he even bring this out? He, told the, he, he addressed himself to the Philippians, the bondservant of Christ. Why is he bringing this title up now in this last letter? Because I'll tell you why. When he came to the point where he was about to die, he says, I want to remind you this. I got a call from God and I finished that call. I, I know what God called me to do, and, and I've done it well. And at the end of my life, I'm glad that I finished and finished that call. Um, now, being an apostle was Paul's calling. But let me also say this. It wasn't his work. Now, let me explain. Sometimes your calling can be your work. Uh, there are people who have the privilege of being in full-time ministry, and their calling and their work are the same. But I've seen this with a lot of professions if I find a teacher that stays teaching, almost always if they're a Christian, they do it because they feel called to be a teacher. There's no other reason to do it. If I find a fireman or a policeman and they continue doing it till retirement, it's most often because they feel like that is God's calling. There's sometimes when you're working, your calling will be the same thing. Do you understand that? But Paul, in order to pay the bills, had a work. He made tents. And I'm sure he did that well because he taught workers, whatever you do, do it hardly as to the Lord, not in the men. 
And I'm sure he did a good job with that. But what happened is at the end of the day when he was finished making tent, then he got to do his calling. He got to be an apostle. So, so let me make this clear. We have work to do and work is not a dirty word. In fact, let me give you a cross-reference on that. First, the, the First Thessalonians chapter 4. We encourage you, brothers and sisters, to do this even more, to seek to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands. <laughs> it's God's will that you work and work hard. That, that's something we ought to do and, and, and know that that pleases God. But beyond that, if we can find our calling and say, I worked hard at that. Now, let me, let me tell you a cross-reference verse. And you get so much of Paul's personality, his humility and his audacity come in these next verses. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 9 through 10. For I'm the least of the apostles, not worthy to be called an apostle. There's his humility. Because I persecuted the church of God. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Now, look at this. But his grace to me was not in vain. On contrary, I worked harder than any of them. <laughs> Don't you love that? <laughs> I shouldn't be an apostle, but I guarantee you this. Once God called me out, you name an apostle, I outworked him. <laughs> so, so he gave himself to his calling, and, and, and he could say that with all of his heart. Let me give you an example of someone who had both a job and a calling that he pleased God in, and that is my dad. My dad worked until retirement for Bristol Myers as a pharmaceutical salesperson. He, he called on doctors and nurses. That's what he did to pay the bills. And as a committed Christian, he turned that into a mission field. His calling was evangelism. But I guarantee you this, his doctors and nurses told me this. He had sat down with every doctor and every nurse and had shared the gospel with each one of them. And that, that's amazing, isn't it? Uh, they, they gave him a Bible with their signatures on it when he retired. The doctors and nurses did. My dad did his job well because he was the top salesman for his district every single year. But I know my dad and his calling was to reach Macon for Christ. And he couldn't wait for the day to be over because then he would pick up his calling. And I could just give you a couple of examples of what my dad did for decades one of the, we had a huge state fair that was in Macon, Georgia in the, in the early days. And for over 20 years, he rented a booth there, took a week off, and the booth had a sign over it, can we have your opinion? And there were times when I would sit next to him and he would get others to sit next to him, but he was there every hour of it. And during the time the fair was there, he would have a religious survey and when it was over, said, can we share something with you? And then he would share the gospel with them. And he did that every year for decades. My dad had such a burden for Macon that there were four or five businessmen that for more than two decades, they got together at Tuesday morning, six o'clock, and got on their knees for an hour and prayed that God would draw people in Macon to Jesus Christ. My dad had a job. He did that well. He had a calling, and that's what made his life significant. Number, second, number two, when you're at the end of your life, you think about your friends. When you're at the end of your life, you think about your friends. Notice the intimacy with which he addresses Timothy. To Timothy, my dearly loved son. Now, 1 Timothy was written during that time when he was out of prison before he got put back in prison. And he says this, he says, to Timothy, my own son in the faith. That, that's all right. But this is the last letter. And he says, Timothy, my dearly loved son. Son, 
at the end of his life, he wanted to express his love to his friends. He wanted to show that love. I'm writing a new course for Fruitland now on pastoral ministry. And one of my passions to communicate to the current generation and to those who are coming about is that there's a calling to be both a pastor as well as a preacher. Some today just want to preach and they don't want to stand by their people and love them and be there for them. And I don't believe you can do that biblically. I believe that Ephesians 4.11 says my calling is to be a pastor and a teacher. So I'm trying to teach that to them and and tell people that this is why you're called. You love your people. You get to know your people. You stand by your people. And, And let me tell you what I found as I approached the end of my ministry 48 years of ministry now. I found that when I look back on my ministry, I don't look back and say what made my life meaningful were all the good programs I started. Because I guarantee you every time I've left a church, the next one has changed every one of those programs. I I like this little motto, lift up Jesus and love people. It seems to work. It doesn't take five minutes before that thing's thrown away with the next guy. Now I pray that it won't this time. But anyway. <laughs> but, uh, so if, if I were to say programs are what gives my life meaning, they, they get changed. The second church that Karen and I went to uh, was a church that um, grew tremendously. We went from 50, 150 to about 400 people. We couldn't fit in the little sanctuary that we had. So we went out on faith with a church that was just growing. And that's hard when you're just growing. And we built... We doubled the size of the buildings, including a large new sanctuary that would would be able to hold our people. Within just a few years after I left, and by the way, I commend them for this because we were landlocked on only a small piece of property. They voted to buy property at the edge of town and relocate and rebuild. I felt so much Sense of satisfaction, look what we did. I left them behind with double the buildings and the sanctuary they could fit in, and it's gone. <laughs> and, and thank God they're much bigger now because they made that wise decision. But if buildings were what gives a person satisfaction when they've been in the ministry, that just doesn't last. Can I tell you right now, Karen would echo this right now. The things we look on, on right now that we cherish so much are those friendships and people we love that have been in every church. You got a call recently from somebody that was in our church in Oklahoma, and we were there 78 to 81, and they just wanted to check on you. And it's the relationships that matter. And it's love. Didn't Jesus say it's love that matters most of all? And so you need to say relationships will be my priority. Friendships will be my priority. My family will be my priority. And can I give you one more call before I leave this point? Because relationships are so important, can I plead with you to express your love to those you love? Sometimes we men are hard, it's hard for us. We don't feel like it's manly to say that we love somebody. Here's Paul saying, my son, Timothy, I dearly love you. Brian Piccolo and Gail Sayers made history in the NFL. Both graduated the same year. By the way, Brian Piccolo got more votes for Heisman than Gail Sayers did, and Gail Sayers became the Hall of Fame running back. But they both played for the Chicago Bears. The reason they made history is they became the first black and white teammates to be made roommates for training camp and for the away games, and they became best friends because of that. Now, Piccolo went into the shadows because Gail Sayers was so great, 
But one year, Gail Sayers was injured, was out for the season, and Brian Piccolo came to the surface, and he had an extraordinary season. The next season, Sayers came back. He was healthy, and Sayers would become a star once again. Midway through that next season, Piccolo knew something was wrong, and they found out that he was terminally ill with cancer. The next spring, they gave the George S. Hallis Award, which is the Comeback of the Year Award, to Gail Sayers, Brian Piccolo was dying at that time. Let me read you Gail Sayers' speech when he received the George S. Hallis Award. You flatter me by giving me this award, but I tell you here and now that I accept it for Brian Piccolo. Brian Piccolo is the man of courage who should receive the George S. Hallis Award. It's mine tonight, but it's going to be his tomorrow. I love Brian Piccolo, and I'd love all of you to love him too. And tonight when you hit your knees... Please ask God to love him. So when you're at the end of your life, you think about your calling, your work. When you're at the end of your life, you think about your relationships, those you love. Number three, when you're at the end of your life, you think about your spiritual blessings more than your worldly blessings. Look what he says here. Grace, mercy, peace to you from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I love what Justin put on it. I didn't use it last time, but I'm going to put it in here now. He says, when you get to the end, you think about your calling over your career, your friends over your 401k, your spiritual blessings over your earthly trinkets, and your everlasting life over your temporary death. That'll preach downstairs, I guarantee you, because that's where he is right now. But I've never heard a dying person just before they died said, the one thing I regret, I wish I had a better car. I've never had a dying person say, you know, the one thing I wished, I wished I could have shopped for more clothes. <laughs> it's not going to happen when you're at the end. Those worldly things do not satisfy, and you'll find they will mean nothing. Howard Hughes was the richest man in the world when he died. He owned an airplane manufacturing company. He owned an airline, TWA, which was successful during that time. He owned a movie studio, RKO movie studio, dated many of the most beautiful starlets of his day and time. But he was a paranoid man. His story was done in the movie Aviator. And he was a recluse who wasn't seen the last two, 10 years of his life. And when he died, they took his body to the coroner in Las Vegas. And the FBI had to use fingerprints to know who it was because he was unrecognizable. The richest man in the world, six foot four in height, was down to 90 pounds. He died from malnutrition and was covered in bed sores. His internal organs were fine. He could have lived. But the doctor who inspected his body found five broken off hypodermic needles in the flesh of his arms where he was putting narcotics in to ease his pain. Here's the richest man in the world who could have anything and died in such a way. Doesn't it remind you of what Jesus said? For what does it benefit someone if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Let me tell you about something better than anything that Hughes could have bought. How about grace? Grace is the blessings that God gives to people who don't deserve it. Forgiveness, strength in our weakness, that's grace. I've been a recipient of grace. 
Mercies, a different word. So many times people, mercy is when you don't get what you, no, no. Mercy is a word that describes God's empathy, his tenderness that comes to us. When I'm at that low point, I feel the flood of God's affection coming to me. That's mercy. Grace has been mine. Mercy has been mine. And then he said, peace is yours. Have you ever seen a day when more people openly claim to be crippled by anxiety? And God says, I'll give you something that the world can't buy. It's called peace. It's a peace that passes understanding. My house is small compared to others, but I've received grace. I'm, I'm forgiven. I'm on my way to heaven because of what Jesus did for me. I don't drive a fancy car, but I've received God's tender mercy every time I've needed it. I've never taken a drink of alcohol, but I've had more peace than anybody that went to the bottle or to a pill. Because I've gotten that from God. That's what I cherish right now. Don't you cherish that? Number four, when you come to the end of your life, you think about heaven. You think about heaven. Now, I'm going to go back to that first verse. Look what it says. Paul, an apostle of Jesus, of Christ Jesus, by God's will, for the sake of the promise of life in Christ Jesus. Now, if anybody were to look at Paul, one of those Roman soldiers that would go by and look in the bars and make sure he's still there. If anybody who was his friend, no, he's down in the Mamertine prison. At any moment, they'll take him up and, and he'll be beheaded. If anybody looked at him and they'd say, poor Paul, death is in his future. And he wants to say to Timothy, let me make this clear. The only thing that's in my future is life. I'm an apostle because I have the promise of life. He was like saying, Timothy, they say I'm going to die, but I'm going to live. Now, many of you have been to funerals that I do, and I've got certain standard sayings that I use. And one of the things I say to the family is I want you to know this. Your loved one, if they're a Christian, they didn't die, they got promoted. That's the reality, isn't it? We don't die, we get promoted. Death should be taken out of our vocabulary. In 2 Timothy 1.10, listen to what it says. This has now been made evident through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to life through the gospel. There's a sense, my brothers and sisters, that you and I should never have the word death come out of our mouth. I'm not going to die. I'm going to get promoted. The minute my eyes close here, I'm waking up in heaven. And by the way, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. That's what's in our future. So let me bring this to a conclusion. I believe that every Christian should have these two convictions. Number one, you ought to have the assurance, the conviction that when you die, you will be in heaven. Not might be, you will be. That's one of the reasons we say John 3.16 every Sunday. Whosoever believeth in him will not perish. Don't you let them put in your obituary that you died. You did not perish. You have everlasting life. I have his word on it. He keeps his promise. Jesus died for me and rose again. That guarantees it. And we ought to know that when we die, we're going to heaven. So I want to stop right now. I want you to look at me, please, because this is an important question. Do you know that when you die, you're going to go to heaven? Now, I'm not saying are you worthy of it because I'm not worthy of it. But I know because I took the gift and I have the promise and I have it guaranteed by his death and resurrection. Do you know?
I'm going to lead you in a prayer in a moment to make sure that, that you can know. But secondly, since heaven is real, and it is, are you living like this life is just the test and heaven's the main event? Because that's the way we ought to live, isn't it? Hey, can we be honest? I know we go through some rough times here, but you can put up with about anything as long as you think it's just a test that means the best is coming. It's going to be real good real soon. And it'll be real good real soon for a real long time. So we need to face this life as the test and live with that eternal perspective. So with that said, let me go back to the first one. If you have any uncertainty, I don't want anyone moving. Would you bow your heads? And I want to give you words to say, but I want you to have it come from your heart. Would you pray with me now? Say these words and mean them. Oh, Jesus, I believe in you. I believe you died for me and rose again. Today I put my faith in you. Come in. Save me. Make me your own. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if you just prayed that, I've got some good news. You have his word. You and I are going to heaven together. This is just the test. We're going we're gonna to go to the main event and get good seats <laughs> and see the one with the nail prints in his hands. Wow. Well, let's sing about that now.